chaos is not a bug, but a feature. Microsoft hires former OpenAI CEO Sam Altman. OpenAI staff threatened to quit unless the board resigns. The list of mergers and acquisitions by Microsoft is absolutely staggering. Less than 24 hours later, Sam Altman is back. OpenAI has reached an agreement in principle for Sam Altman to return to OpenAI as CEO. What the? The same can be said for mergers and acquisitions that happen in Big Pharma. Pfizer wins unconditional EU antitrust OK for $43 billion buy of company CGen. A hostile takeover is just another day at the office for Big Tech and Big Pharma. The thoughts expressed in this podcast are my own views. They do not reflect the values of my employers. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Crossover Connections with Jack Wayne podcast. My name is Jack. I'm a scientist, YouTuber, and podcaster and on this podcast we cover the business of science and what all of the headlines inform us about the jobs of the future. OpenAI, the AI company that's been in all the headlines for at least the past 12 months with their revolutionary chat GPT products as well as their suite of AI tools and it seems at first like something that we've never seen before. Any company at the top of its game suddenly ousting its number one CEO, its top person, trying to shake things up to great or dastardly effects. We don't really know what outcome it is just at this moment. My thesis for today is this is very much business as usual. If you're in the science, technology, engineering, maths, the STEM fields, or any area where business is infused with innovation and there's R&D involved, this kind of shenanigans, this kind of shakeup at the top is very routine and it is in fact not a bug but instead a feature of the system that propels innovation forward. The first article comes courtesy of Wired and this is a very quickly evolving space so by the time it takes me to record, edit and upload this podcast, two days would have passed and these headlines will seem out of date. This has really highlighted how loyal and what kind of company culture has been built within OpenAI, certainly by Sam Altman and his close-knit cabinet of co-founders. 730 employees at OpenAI have all signed a letter saying they may quit and join Sam Altman. The board terminated him for some reasons that are still unclear and I believe there may be many books written about this by tech biographers in the coming years. OpenAI was supposed to be founded upon non-for-profit guidelines and principles. They've since had a more profit generating arm of the company and Sam Altman presumably had to oversee both and he had to be responsible for not only generating revenue but also developing new products and collaborating with other companies and the board may still be within their non-for-profit mindset. Really this is all conjecture. We have no idea the shenanigans going on inside there. All that we know is that Sam Altman was out. There was a last minute attempt to bring him back in. That didn't come to pass and now Microsoft swooped in and hide Sam Altman away from OpenAI. In the events leading up to all of those sequences of hiring and firing and rehiring, and they removed their successors and found different CEOs and named interim CEOs and replaced them with other CEOs. So right now it's the uh, 21st of November at the time of recording, 2023. 738 out of OpenAI's around 770 employees have signed a letter saying that they blamed the board of coordinating a coup against Altman and they will quit unless Sam Altman rejoins the company. And OpenAI's board removed Altman from his position, claiming he was not consistently candid in his communications with the board, hindering its ability to exercise its responsibilities. And again, my best guess is it's something related to that non-for-profit versus revenue generating divergent missions of OpenAI and that may have led to this kind of shakedown or this kind of hostile takeover. What we do know is Microsoft has left this situation 
in a much healthier place than it was before, which is very interesting. And Microsoft's CEO Satya Nadella announced that Altman and his co-founder Greg Brockman would join the tech giant had a new advanced AI research unit within Microsoft. And of course, Microsoft was already an investor in OpenAI. This just further solidifies their ability to bring that capability in-house. And now they've got the leading mind in this area, as well as supremely loyal employees, apparently at OpenAI, many of them choosing probably to quit and potentially join Microsoft and Microsoft, why wouldn't they take them on? They want a team that wants to hit the ground running, use the GPT-4 models to build upon new tools for Microsoft. And they can do this much, much more efficiently if OpenAI's team just is transposed from OpenAI to Microsoft. Everyone's calling it an ingenious move, a hostile takeover. Satya Nadella says we remain committed to our partnership with OpenAI and have confidence in our product roadmap and our ability to continue to innovate. Of course, he would have confidence in his ability to innovate. He just hired away the top people from arguably his uh, potentially biggest competitor. And I'm not really sure what the antitrust regulators will say about this rather monopolistic effort that Microsoft has taken on. But they're certainly not new to this idea of a monopoly, certainly not a stranger to antitrust lawsuits. Future Jack here, this is very much a validation of my point that this is business as usual, this chaos in OpenAI. Less than 24 hours after I made the initial podcast recording on Twitter, OpenAI confirmed that they've reached an agreement for Sam Ullman to return as a CEO and Sam Ullman confirmed this via Twitter. And the reporting that's followed up on this has really highlighted the insanity that is very routine in Silicon Valley and indeed in big tech and of course in big pharma, which we'll talk about in a second. And I have read a lot of headlines saying this is unprecedented. We've never seen anything like this before and it's sending shockwaves through all the different arenas. When I read this, it just seemed like business as usual. I can't be the only one to think that upon reading these headlines. Let's break it down bit by bit because again, I'm a scientist. We're in an area that's fueled by innovation where there is very little patience for the status quo. Everything has always been shaken up. We at the very best have a three to five year plan, but none of our five year plans typically come into fruition, always pivoting and reconfiguring. And if you're a young person wanting to venture into this space where there's a lot of innovation, maybe a lot of startup funding, venture capital, seed funding, this is a dynamic place that's super exciting to work, but you can never really be sure what's coming next. So you have to be ready for the inevitable. Let's look at Microsoft's history in this space and see if this is a little counter to what they've done historically. And of course, spoiler, this is completely in line with everything they've done throughout almost the entire history of their company. To the point where on Wikipedia, there is a very comprehensive list of the mergers and acquisitions by Microsoft. And if you look at this list, this is an unbelievable scroll where it just seemingly never ends. You keep scrolling down and down, it's organized by date. And we're going all the way back to the early 90s. And if we look at the most recent acquisitions, companies that you may have heard of, maybe still hold some relevancy in the current media conversation. Activision Blizzard, notable for very, very popular games. Diablo 4 is the one that's consuming all of my downtime. Incredible market share in the gaming space and Microsoft just acquired them in 2022, not without its fair share of controversy. Again, around that antitrust regulation around maybe one company holding too many of the cards, but they acquired Activision Blizzard. But really, they're looking for all sorts of different things to be invested in, if not to outright own. If we look at the category, of business that they've acquired or merged with over the last just five years, video games, infrastructure, 
optical networking, cyber threat analysis, process mining, marketing analytics, video games, digital media, content moderation, software, productivity, education, video editing software, peer-to-peer network. They've got their fingers in all sorts of pies. They are not averse to just outright acquiring you. And with all the resources they have at their disposal, why wouldn't they? Unless again, the antitrust regulators say, no, 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 this is too much of a monopoly. It's very much in their best interest to acquire these companies. And when they acquire these companies, they typically have to pay quite a lot of money for uh, Activision that looks to be, if my math is correct, in the order of $68 billion. What's really fascinating here is that they didn't have to pay anything for OpenAI, at least to remove the guts of it. The founder, maybe many of its engineers, credit to Sam Altman for building a company culture that was loyal to him rather than loyal to a paycheck. It's very hard to do in this day and age. And they were able to extract the guts of that without having to pay any money for the value of that company. But how this evolves is anyone's guess. We don't really know what's gonna happen, but certainly Microsoft is very, very comfortable playing this game of just outright buying their competitor if it's of strategic value to them. And there's incredible parallels to the sector that I'm more familiar with, which is big pharma, the pharmaceutical industry, science-based companies, because mergers and acquisitions are also very much in the name of science. Certainly within a biologics area where I have worked and I have studied and I have collaborators in, these are products that are built to be bought. They are built to be acquired because the actual cost of taking a brand new drug that you've discovered in the lab all the way through testing, then to trials, then to marketability and, and selling all over the world. That is an astronomically expensive proposition. We're not just talking about the cost of physically producing the drugs. We're also talking about the intellectual property, the patenting costs, the testing costs. So to really make that a economic feasibility, the person who discovered the drug, if they're not already working for a big pharma company, very rarely will be the person who ultimately still owns all of the IP. We make these discoveries to hopefully sell it to big pharma and big pharma is always in the routine practice of buying smaller startup companies who have just a couple of drugs to their name or a couple of promising leads they will buy them and take their capacity in-house sadly this has affected much of that startup buyer hack community mindset which we did talk about in the last episode we do not really have that many startups in the biotech space certainly in australia a lot of it has been bought out by the big players in the field. And again, just like Microsoft, the Big Pharma has its own very comprehensive Wikipedia entry of the largest pharmaceutical mergers and acquisitions in history. But if we scroll down this list of mergers and acquisitions, we can see that these are huge acquisitions. These are for usually anywhere from 50 to $100 billion worth of mergers and acquisitions. These are very expensive purchases with a lot of intellectual property that's very valuable, at least at the time of purchase. You can see all the big players, Pfizer, Glaxo, Sanofi, Merck, Roach. They are all buying things up left and right. If you look at the list of failed mergers and acquisitions, you can see that this kind of thing is also happening. And a lot of the time it is canceled due to some kind of government regulation. These pharma companies getting too big too quickly because of all of the mergers and acquisitions that they are making. One of the more aggressive players you can see is Pfizer. Pfizer has really made a lot of attempts to buy a lot of different companies in this space. The most recent one that Pfizer has completed, a company called CGen, which they completed the purchase of for $43 billion. And of course, any kind of sale like this does have to go through vetting. Pfizer was an unconditional approval for purchasing CGen. Pfizer announced this purchase in March and it is the largest purchase 
in a string of recent acquisitions. So again, this highlights the idea that buying out your competitors and bringing them in-house and ousting them to make sure they're no longer a threat while retaining the most valuable part of their operation, this is standard business as usual in a setting like science and innovation. And certainly in tech, it's also business as usual. And what was interesting here is its description of its once-in-a-lifetime cash windfall from its vaccine and treatment rollout in response to the global pandemic. What I'm curious about is what is so valuable inside CGen that makes it worth $43 billion to Pfizer. CGen's website is of course linked in the show notes below. It's also very easily Googleable. You can look at its pipeline of drugs and it is very very clear the safety and efficacy of these compounds have not been established these uses have not been approved by the u.s fda or other regulatory authorities so of its pipeline of drugs which are all designed around cancer and cancer care sure it's got some drugs that have maybe been approved and have been further along that clinical trial pipeline but it's got a whole bunch of drugs that have not yet fully been tested, but still adds to that $43 billion valuation. So we look down a list of drugs. All of these are pretty much unknown, unknowns at this point. Adcitrus, designed to treat Hodgkin's lymphoma, is my understanding. It's been through phase one, phase two, phase three. It also has Padcef, treating different types of urothelial or bladder cancer again. They've been through different phases of clinical trials for different kinds of cancers. Takiza, Takathanib, these are all monoclonal antibodies targeting certain cancer the compounds targeting certain receptors or certain compounds that are indicative or biomarkers of cancer. Big Pharma, and in this case Pfizer, is very willing to gut its competitors or just purchase them if that is too difficult to manage and in each case trying to extract the most valuable part of their competitors. It could just be the drugs and the patents to the drugs or it could be that whole company's operation, their whole R&D wing, their laboratory facilities, the people there that are driving this innovation, driving this research, they purchased the whole shebang. In Microsoft and OpenAI's case, they just extracted the most valuable people. The people were fine. Even if this didn't happen, I think a merger or acquisition down the track would have been very, very possible with OpenAI given how valuable its suite of AI products seem to be on the open market. This is interesting. Right, But it is a little sadistic, a little masochistic to look at this from the perspective of an individual employee. I'm an individual employee. I'm not a big employer. So fundamentally, I still feel very vulnerable to these volatile market forces. I've been working in the field as a professional for a better part of 15, 20 years. Even I feel pretty vulnerable. I can't imagine what this might feel like if you are a recent graduate, you're just starting your PhD, or you're just about to finish your PhD in science, or you've just decided to take up and finish your engineering degree and trying to work in Silicon Valley, I have no idea what this might feel like, what your job prospects, what your vision for the future must be, whether they're completely changed or they're crushed. I don't really know how we're supposed to reconcile with it. So to finish this episode, I have to round it out with our recurring segment, Whose Job Is It Anyway? My best attempt at trying to help younger professionals navigate the certainties and the uncertainties and the treacheries of the professional environment informed by how very cutthroat innovative workspaces like science and tech approach these matters. So let's say you don't want to stay loyal. You're a free agent. You're only a short-term hire at any single company. And you want to get in, get paid your worth and get out because you know companies will change. So you have to be loyal to yourself. You have to be selfish before you can be selfless. Well, one tool to do this is through LinkedIn. 
So you could create your LinkedIn profile, connect with a lot of people, and when it's time to jump ship, you could choose to turn on that open to work badge on LinkedIn. So recruiters know that you are open to work and you start fostering this network, the sense of the inevitable departure from your current workplace. Of course, you've got great skills, so you should be in demand, right? According to the next article, that's probably the worst thing you can do because LinkedIn's open to work tag, according to this article from the Business Insider, is the biggest red flag for recruiting managers and it screams desperation. You reek of desperation if you do this. Why is this the case? The open to work badge on your profile photo on LinkedIn, according to Nolan Church, an ex-Google recruiter, says you will be willing to take on any role whatsoever. Even if that's true, you shouldn't give that sign off that, hey, I'm desperate for a job, I'll take anything. You gotta play it a little bit more mysteriously. And what this article says, recruiting is like dating. You have to make the other side feel like you're an exclusive commodity. They think top talents aren't actively seeking jobs. And in fact, to move them to a new role, they have to pull them out, given they're already content in their very, very specialized and valuable current role. Advertising that you're open to work and actively looking for a job actually can turn off many hiring managers and can make the job candidate seem desperate. And you have to be careful not to seem like you're anxious or you're grasping. And that's why there is a feature currently in LinkedIn that when you select open to work, you can select a non-public option. The recruiters all across LinkedIn can see that you are open to work, but not everyone in your contact list, everyone in your network won't see that you're open to work. Recruiters who work in your organization may still see that you're open to work. So it's not truly non-public, but that is still a much more subtle way of putting feelers out as to, hey, I'm a free agent, I'm willing to move if I'm need to if there's a better opportunity. So that is a more subtle way of making it seem like you're exclusive doing that dance as opposed to just saying, hey, after 12 months, I'm definitely leaving every place. I'm not loyal to anyone. I'm not loyal to anything. I've got to look out for myself. Now that job hopping approach again, may not be up to us. We may be forced to job hop if the company, the startups that we're working at are not very stable. Yes, it's very exciting to be at the cutting edge of innovation, but that's a dual-edged sword. You will also be potentially cut by those very innovative cutthroat businesses that are always changing. That mindset of wanting to move from job to job because we think it's better, especially if every new job gives you better working conditions, better pay, that gravy train for a lot of sectors seems to be coming to a halt, if not just slowing down temporarily. The next article from CNBC says, it pays a lot less to switch jobs right now and the new high glow is very much fading. In 2022, there was a phenomenon known as the Great Resignation, when new hires could expect to see a 10% jump in pay, given that it was very much a worker's market. Employers couldn't find good people quickly enough. Everyone wanted to be independent, work from home, cut down their hours to part-time, be hybrid, and employers couldn't really find the people who they thought they would be able to find on the open market. So new hires were getting the benefit of the doubt. But that year-over-year -year pay growth for new hires has fallen, and it's only 2.9% in 2023 so far. There's a lower quit rate, increased labor supply, and falling worker demand, all to be blamed for slowing wage growth. And new highs in finance, the pay growth has been literally at a standstill. In the tech sector, it's even worse. We saw some evidence of that. Tech sector is very volatile, lots of layoffs. Even founders are being laid off. Sam Altman, founder, 
laid off. And when you're looking for a job currently, one person's experience is that after going through lots of interviews and receiving job offers, all of them came with significantly lower salaries, less than half than what this person was doing in his current role. So jumping to a new job didn't really do him any good. The last time he tried to look for a new job in 2021, recruiters were scrambling, flooding his inbox, willing to negotiate higher and higher salaries. And this is very much a changing of the tide. This really shows that you need a very subtle and delicate approach to advancing your career. It's not as simple as, hey, I quit or I quietly quit or I try and maneuver behind the scenes. I think a much better approach is to move towards an external facing deliverable before you think about changing roles, whether it be a big client that you can put out a press release that, hey, we landed this client or in outfield, putting together a big publication or getting a big grant. Again, you can talk about it. It's publicly facing. It's actually way more effective than saying that you're open to work. People are not so much interested in your willingness to work. That's just the truth of it. They're much more interested in what you can do for them. And that is the energy you need to be putting out there into the internet, into your professional networks. This is what I'm capable of doing. If you make it a habit of talking about your external facing achievements, as opposed to only talking about ones when you think, oh, it's time to leave, then that might seem a little out of pocket. This really then sets the expectation. Hey, this person I've seen, I've read about their work for at least 12 months, for a year. And when you ask to talk to them and have a coffee with a recruiter or have a coffee with the CEO of a company, the chance that they can look you up and see everything that you've done in a nutshell, that is way, way more powerful than any simple open to work tag that also protects you from the volatility of the job market, the volatility of big tech or big pharma. It comes down to what you can do as an individual and your ability to talk to people about what you can do. I believe the next episode is going to be about genetic testing, especially a scandal around forensic lab testing based here in Queensland. Whatever the next episode is, you'll find it linked up here when it's ready to go. I'm Jack. Thanks for listening. Hope to connect with you again in the next episode.